And we are starting a new series, as you can see uh, from behind me, on generosity. Uh, this week we're going to talk about money and stuff. Typically, the first things that we think of with generosity is about like giving material things away, but obviously it's much more than that, so we're going to look at more, but we are starting here first. And as I was preparing for this sermon today, um, one of my favorite, ly- favorite lyrics came to mind is from a singer-songwriter named Joe Pug, which if you like dogs, I guess he has a cool name too. Um, it says, uh, the more I buy, the more I'm bought. The more I'm bought, the less I cost. Consumerism is dehumanizing. Consumerism is something that everyone who lives in a westernized world has to come to grips with. It's not just about money, though that's a big thing. It's the idea that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, motivated by what will get me what I want. It's a way of life, and we're surrounded by it. We can't help but be influenced by it. It's the sea that we swim in. A marketing firm did a study that found we are exposed to how many advertisements a day do you think we're exposed to? Take a guess. Ooh, 5,000. Wow. And this study was done in 2007. So surely there's more. That's more than three every single minute beamed into our eyeballs. Most people think that number's doubled now. I mean, do you think that shapes us? Surely it must. Being presented with uh, ideas and, and things to buy or things to spend your time or your money on over and over and over and over again, surely that shapes who we are. How can it not? So the question isn't, does it shape us? And the question, or, or the answer isn't, well, let's remove ourselves from it because it's, it's impossible unless we all become monks. Um, the question for us is, how do we respond to it? Giving in requires us to do nothing. If we do, if we do nothing, it's easy to give in. And that's what advertisers and corporations are banking on, that you won't do anything and you'll just be susceptible to this. Do you ever wonder how when you visit a website, all of a sudden you get ads for that thing everywhere? I, um, you're always being followed. You're always being mined for possible things to buy. We all have stalkers in our lives. It's a bit creepy. It's not the weird guy in the street, though. It's the big corporation in Silicon Valley. I mean, I was searching for a DVD box set for Christina for Christmas, um, for Murder, She Wrote. You can talk to her about that later. Um, and I searched for it, I, I think, on Amazon, and it was showing up on Facebook. It was showing up on Google. I was like, oh, no, if she uses my computer, she's going to know I'm like, going to buy this for her. I couldn't even buy something for her without, like, you know, the ads gave it away. When you search for something, when you like something, even if you talk about something near your phone, they're not listening, quote, unquote. Of course they are. Don't be naive. You, you are being monitored. Facebook is free because we are the product. And we are being sold literally to the highest bidder. I call this, this whole system, the consumerist industrial complex. This is where big data, um, like the big tech companies merge with corporations. Uh, It's from banks to insurance to advertisers to tech companies, internet cookies, Facebook and Amazon. People with the biggest brains and the most power in this world are leveraging all of that so they can beam things for you to buy into your eyeballs. They even know what time of day you're most susceptible to them. If you Google like how to save for retirement at like midnight, they know, oh, this person's probably afraid if they're not saving enough for retirement. So if they have that kind of mindset, then I'm going to market to them all sorts of things, not just retirement products, but that becomes political ads, that becomes everything. Your fear is their fulcrum. Now, it's probably not crazy to say that Silicon Valley controls more of our lives than our Bibles. That's probably not crazy. A typical person touches their phone over 2,500 times a day. 
and the real power users, users over 5,000. I mean, how can a measly one-minute prayer before you start your day compete with all that? 62% of people in a year say they buy something to cheer themselves up at least once a year. 28% of people bought something as a form of celebration. So when we're sad, we buy something. When we're happy, we buy something. When we don't have enough of money, we get worried and we lose sleep. Now, from someone who thinks and talks a lot about worship, that sounds a lot like worship to me. The more I buy, the more I'm bought. The more I'm bought, the less I cost. So given the consumer industrial, industrial complex, given that exists, what kind of humans do we want to be? Generosity is the rebellion to that. It's the resistance, it's the antidote to consumerism. Generosity is also a value of our church. So we're going to spend some time on generosity this week and the next two weeks. So next week we're going to talk about relationships, and the week after that we're going to be talking about generosity and how it corresponds to justice. So this week, though, we're going right to the jugular, talking about what everyone wants to talk about, what every pastor wants to always talk about, which is completely awkward, and sorry for this, but not sorry, because we're doing it anyway. We're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about material things. And the verses that we read... In 2 Corinthians 8, it's Paul writing to the church at Corinth. A bit of a background. Corinth was a fashionable center. It was rich. They had a lot of money. Um, it was multicultural. There were a lot of Jews, Greeks, and Romans there. And they were known for being immoral. So basically, they kind of did whatever they wanted to do. Um, it was also somewhat of a new city. It wasn't an older city. I think there are lots of parallels of Manchester here with Corinth. Uh, here, uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, but he's giving an example from a poorer area called Macedonia. This is like Philippi, um, Berea, and Thessalonica. So some of those other letters of Paul's written to these other areas. There are big differences between the Macedonian area and the Corinth, uh, the church of Corinth. Macedonians were poor. Um, the Christians there were ostracized and they were persecuted, which led to their material poverty. But they were also very generous. So they're very different than the Corinth church. So Paul has been do, trying to do this thing to collect money for persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. So he's been going around to different churches, trying to create a partnership for people to help these persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. And he talks to the Corinth church. He's like, well, they have a lot of money. They're well off. They could probably give something to help these other people who aren't. But it seems from our text that Paul actually didn't even talk to these Macedonian churches. But they heard about this, and they wanted to get in on it. So the church of Corinth... Well, originally, initially they were excited. They're like, yeah, let's do it. Put me down for X amount of money. And then they did not follow through, which is why Paul has to talk to them again. He has to send his, his friend and Titus, who gets along well with the church there. So Paul doesn't want these Corinthians to be stuck in their consumerist ways. He's highlighting how this church that's materially poor is showing really what's, what, um, what richness actually looks like, what generosity looks like. I think all of this is important for us because we can all stand to be more generous. Very few people that I know, actually probably zero people that I know, would be like, I'm actually pretty generous. I'm pretty good on that. I give away a lot and it hurts all the time. I give away and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to move on that. I think we can all be better. It's also a test of how enslaved we are to the consumerist industrial complex. It's really hard to give. That tells us something about our hearts. It hurts. It requires us to change. It's not often fun. But in our sea of consumerism, I think we truly do want to be more generous people. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like. 
course, a tendency in churches is either to not talk about money because it's awkward or only talk about money because they want to love a lot of it. Um, now, we're not in that getting a whole lot of money thing, but also uh, we don't talk about money often. But if we don't talk about money, something is going to form our ideas about money. And everything that's out there is bad news. So we want the good news to inform us about what, how we deal with our money. Left to ourselves, we can't help but be the only focus in our lives. And consumerism works, not because there are evil corporations out there. Whether they are or not, that actually doesn't even matter. Consumerism works because we love ourselves more than anyone else. But if we want to change, what we'll see in this text is that through Jesus' generous work on the cross, he liberates us from those chains and transforms us from being consumerist followers towards generous people. Through Jesus, we can be generous people in all areas of life, regardless of your material background. And the main areas Paul talks about here, the generosity, uh, we're going to look at three things. It's a sacrifice, it's a skill, and it's an overflow of grace. We'll start with the sacrifice. Sacrifice, skill, and overflow of grace. So Paul starts with a story of sacrificial giving about these Macedonian churches. He's not impressed about the amount of money that they're giving. He's not saying, Corinthians, you, you, th- you guys thought you were rich? Well, this Macedonian church just gave 10,000 pounds. Can you beat, can you beat that? He's not, he's not, he doesn't really care about the amount. He's, he's impressed with the fact that they wanted to join in. They wanted to be generous. And where does the generosity come from? Verse 1 says, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So the first step in generosity isn't that we give something. It's that actually we've received something first. We've received grace from God. It's not a guilt trip. It's a response to love. And because it comes from God, that means whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we can embrace generosity regardless where we are. Verse 2 says these Macedonian churches, they're in the midst of a very severe trial, and they also had extreme poverty. But they had a joy that materialized in generous giving to others. Now, if this joy that these these Macedonian churches have, if it doesn't come from their circumstances, where does it come from? It doesn't come from their religious freedom because they're persecuted. It doesn't come from their social inclusion because they've been ostracized. It doesn't come from their material wealth because they don't have that. That means to be poor in all areas and to still be joyful and generous means that there's something deeper than our circumstances. I mean, imagine having a joy that no circumstance can disturb. Imagine being able to live out that joy in your life despite what's going on. And not even like the big things, but like the small things. That's the type of being rich that's worth chasing after. I mean, sometimes material wealth for us has the ability to cover up spiritual poverty. But despite their own problems here, the Macedonian church, they didn't focus on themselves. They were concerned with others. And so they gave. Verse 3 and 4 make it clear that it was completely voluntary. They kind of probably had to track Paul down. They, they begged him to pray. They didn't give out of a surplus. They gave out of a sacrifice. And you know, it probably looked unwise because it gave more than they were able to. Probably people looking in who were like good investment bankers or something were like, ooh, I don't know. You should, probably shouldn't give away that much. That's a bit ridiculous. Now, from what we have here, it sounds like they had to approach Paul to give and they went out of their way and they gave more than they were able. That's sacrificial. Sacrificial giving is the type that changes how you live. And these people rightly saw it as a privilege. The word there um, uh, for privilege in verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, is the same word that we get from grace. 
for grace. It was a grace for them to be involved. Now, it is a grace to be generous. That can be a countercultural counter way of living. Often when we're generous, we think we're being gracious. Oh, we're the ones who are good to others. We're the heroes and the other people are the poor kind of recipients. But really, we ought to see it as a grace for ourselves to be involved in a wonderful possibility. It's not that we get to be the heroes, that we get to be part of God's mission. And that's a grace we receive when we're generous. So the priority of living this way looks like this in verse 5. First, giving yourself to the Lord, and then following through. Give yourself to God's will first, above all. Surrender to that above all. Search that out, above our own wants, above our own needs. And then follow through by actually doing it. What a story of sacrificial giving. But as it is with God's mission, every sacrifice is worth it. It's not, it's not merely that it hurts, but the reason why we do it is because it's a worthy sacrifice. It's something worth sacrificing for. It's joyful. I mean, they saw it as a privilege. It's not like they were kind of like uh, back into a corner, like, oh man, I guess we really ought to give. It's like, oh please, like, let us be a part of this. Back in our high school days, Christina and I used to go to a lot of punk gigs, a lot of ska. Remember ska? That was a thing. No. Living in uh, Northeast Florida, where we, where we were, it didn't often make a lot of financial sense for bands to tour near us, because we were basically at the top part of Florida. Um, and if you didn't have very much money and you were a touring act, going into Florida was a bit expensive, because you had to go down and come up basically the same route, and you probably wouldn't be able to play the same places. But if you were like a big act, like U2 or Dave Matthews or something like that, you'd go much further south because there were arenas there and there were lots of people with a lot more money there. Um, so any, so when a band came by that we loved to our town, we were happy. We were happy to pay the money for the tickets. We weren't there at the gig thinking like, oh, the ticket price in the back of my head. Oh man, it was $10. I mean, we were in high school, so like $10 felt like a lot of money. Also, uh, uh, we were happy to pay. You know, it was a worthy sacrifice. Yeah, we had to sacrifice for it, but we were excited to because we got to see this band play. There's this great quote from Tim Keller, I think that sums this all up and says, anything you really love, you have to stop yourself from spending. Maybe Ross with vinyl. I heard a little bit of story back there. Will with clothes. He has to stop himself from spending because he needs to find some good clothes. I mean, music stuff related. I have to stop books. I mean, we can name all the things. If you love the thing, you have to stop yourself from spending. And may I, I want to draw a difference here too between giving from a surplus versus giving sacrificially. Giving from a surplus maintains an image of generosity. Give, giving sacrificially changes us to truly be generous people. See how giving isn't actually about money, it's about our hearts. Giving from a sacrifice changes us because it changes, literally changes the clothes we buy, our spending habits, our hopes, our worries, where we go on holiday. Giving sacrificially means giving until it hurts. I mean, how do you like the sermon so far? It's going well. It's really fun, isn't it? But the parts that giving hurts are the places of our hearts that might be too strongly connected to the materialistic parts of our world. So practicing generosity is a protest against a capitalism gone awry system out there and in here. In attempting to practice generosity, we see that we're part of the problem because we just want to give from surplus. I don't want to give sacrificially, if given a choice. Giving from a surplus doesn't require us to change. We can remain slaves to consumerism and maintain a good image in the church. We get to have it all, we think. Giving sacrificially, though, changes the way we're living. It affects us. So it's not just about money anymore. Practicing generosity 
the way that Paul's talking about, transforms us. And this is really hard, especially here in Shorten, where we are surrounded by many examples of people who have all sorts of resources and really get to do whatever they want. The answer isn't, don't do any of those things. The answer is, how are we practicing generosity and how we give? And how we live our lives. Sometimes it might mean spending more money on a thing so that you can include others in it. You have to ask those questions for yourself. And anything you really love, you have to stop yourself from spending. So, that's a sacrifice. Generosity is also a skill. It's not something we just fall into. It's not just something we're born with. It's a skill to develop, just like anything else. I think this becomes clear if you look at verses 6 through 8. Um, evidently, the church at Corinth was excited to give, but they weren't following through. So Paul is sending Titus, who is a good standing with the church at Corinth, and Paul trusts Titus. And no, Paul is not uh, scolding the, the Corinthian church here. He's not saying, you guys said you'd give money, and you haven't. What's going on? Um, he does scold them in other areas, but he's not doing this here. He's working with kind of their initial excitement. He's saying, you, got, you guys were, there was a, you, you were excited to originally partner with us. There was an act of grace on your part. And then Paul in verse 7 lists out all the areas that they're gifted. He says, you guys are gifted in faith, gifted in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in love. You guys excel in these things. Now, he's not just buttering them up, saying, don't you look very pretty. Can you give me some money? What he's doing is saying, look, you're gifted in lots of these areas. I want you also to be just as gifted in giving. I want you to be generous like the Macedonians. And this list of gifts for the Corinthians is incomplete unless generosity is in there, unless they live generous lives. So that means by not being generous, they're the ones who are missing out. Oftentimes we think it's the other way. If I'm generous, I'm gonna miss out on that thing that I could use the money on. But actually we're missing out. As much as, Paul is saying, as much as you focus on speech or knowledge or growing giving, and speech and knowledge are, are very kind of high values in the conservative evangelical world. We, uh, and that's great. We're known for Bible teaching. We're known for doctrinal points. This is really good. But do we similarly excel in generosity? Are we known for that as well? Are we known in this country as very generous people who give more than we're able at times? And then in verse 8, again, we see that soft tone. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. An invitation to generosity is an invitation to leave our consumerist selves behind. They have love, appraised by Paul through it, but what kind of love? How real is it? Generosity is the test. The sincerity of our love is tested in our generosity towards others. Do we truly understand how much God loves us? How much he gives to us? Do we understand how good it is for us to be freed from the trappings of consumerism? Or are we afraid that if we're more generous, we'd miss out on some really great stuff? Now, fear of missing out like that leads us to the hold for ourselves. I mean, isn't this the original sin? Adam and Eve both thought God was holding out on them, and he didn't really love them the way he told them to. He didn't really bless them the way he said he did, and so they had to take life into their own hands. Adam and Eve experienced FOMO, fear of missing out. Surely there's something better for me out there. It's not a recent development, although we might experience it more often now. So if there's something better for me out there and God's not giving it to me, that means I need to bypass God and get it for myself. They were afraid God's words were true and the serpent pounced on it, not with venom, not with a bite, but with lies, kind of sideways. God isn't as good as he says he is. He doesn't love you as much as you really need. And that kind of fear 
I mean, whatever your, your political leanings, this is where nationalism comes into play. In the 80s and the early 90s, Western countries experienced massive growth in resources. Now that, growth, now that growth curve isn't quite what it used to be. We've had a few economic downturns. What do we do with less resources? In America and in the UK, we hoard for ourselves. We draw lines, we put up walls, or, or try to. You know, whether Brexit was a good political idea or not, that's, that's not even what I'm talking about. Because when you look at the marketing for remain or for leave, what did it tell you? There was a lot of fear around leave, and it worked. Hoarding is the response to fear. Now, neither side was generous. Neither side was very good, because remain was basically like anyone who believes anything else is racist. Self-righteousness, that was the power that, that leave had. Now, self-righteousness is very, or sorry, that remain had. Self-righteousness is a very strong power. I know, from being a pastor for over, over 10 years, people really want to be self-righteous, but it has nothing on fear. Is your fear of missing out greater than your practice of generosity? If we live out of fear, we will not work at the skill of giving. Growth in speech, growth in knowledge, growth in faith, that all takes work. And the same goes for generosity. It's a skill to be worked out. It's a practice. Practice never retains perfection. We're all works in progress. It just requires action. And in the practice of generosity, we're going to change. Because now, money that used to enslave us to that consumerist industrial complex can now be used to do the opposite. Generosity is a protest not only against the backward ways of the world, but also against the backward ways of our inner lives. Because we're all swimming in this consumerist sea, we have to work at this rebellion, and over time, we grow. Now, but let's say uh, you want to work on this. You want to grow in your own practice of generosity. I want to hit up a few practical helps on how to do that. But before that, I do want to say, we are actually quite generous as a church. None of this comes from a posture of me saying, oh man, if only people gave more money. You guys are some of the most generous people I know. So this isn't a, a scolding or a, a, a backwards way to like wrench your arm to give more money. It's not me like, like maybe how Paul might have come across like buttering you up so you give more money. That's nothing to do with it. I think it's the reason why generosity is one of our values as a church is because it's how you guys are. But if we don't talk about it, then it's going to be lost. So I want us to continue to talk about it as we grow in generosity for ourselves. So all this comes out of a posture of you all are doing this. This is what we're all doing. Um, let's keep on it. You know, let's just grow in this strength together. So um, a couple very basic practical things about how to grow in generosity. The first thing is it requires action. If you don't give now to Redeemer or to other places, just do it. How do you give? You just give. Um, don't give right now if you're married especially. Talk to your partner first. Otherwise, I'll have to do some couples counseling. Um, or if you say, oh, I don't have any money to give. Well, you know, the amount doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to Paul. It doesn't matter to God. It, doesn't matter, it shouldn't matter to anyone here. It's a heart issue. It's just about a, it's just the giving itself. So what does surrendering to Jesus mean with our money? Focusing on the amount shows how consumerist we are. Oh, I can only give 100 pounds. I can only give 10 pounds. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just give. So if you do give, thank you. Uh, and that's not a thank you from me, because you don't give to me, you give to the church. It's a thank you from the whole church. The question for all of us, whether we give or we don't give or whatever, is what does it look like for us to grow in, our, in this practice? Where do we need to increase if we do? We may not need to, but some of us might need to. Now for everyone, what does sacrificial giving look like? I don't know, but you know for yourself. We all have different 
pay schedules. We all have different salaries. Um, some of us are project-based. Some of us get paid differently. And there isn't one way to do it, but if you're not doing it, you actually, you're missing out by not being generous. And so what does giving until it hurts look like for you so that your life changes? All the money that comes into this church is used to advance God's mission in Manchester. I'm part of the field. We get to give to the mission of bringing wholeness to more people in Manchester. That's what we get to give to. If I had more money, I would love to give more money to that. You mean to tell me there's an organization set up in Charlton where more people get to hear about the gospel and experience his family? Like, that exists? How can I give more money to that? If we found out of another organization doing that, we would want to give to that as a church. Also as a church, on the church level, we want to practice generosity ourselves and not just tell others to be generous, but actually be generous ourselves. So that's why we give 5% of all our income to Italy, to the church plant in Italy, and we're looking to give another 5% to another church soon. And also for anyone who gives monthly gifts, 100% of your first gift goes directly to reach out to the community. Now, if I lived out of fear, I would try and hoard as much money as possible for our church. I'd be like, yeah, we shouldn't give any money away right now because we don't have very much of it. Look how small we are. You know, we need to use that money for, you know, to, for us to grow. How can we afford to give? Of course, how can we afford not to? It requires action. Second, it requires prayer. If you want to give more and can't, pray that God will make it possible. The Macedonian church begged to give. Do you beg to give? If you could ask God for any kind of money to give away, what would, what would the amount be? What would your goal be? Also, another area to pray is what's your motivation? Is it merely duty? Is it guilt? Are you giving because it's expected of you? Are you giving because the pastor just gave a sermon on, on giving? And that's another area to take to prayer. I think we can all beg God to be more generous and to have a more generous motivation. And the third... Um, because we are all perfectionists here, is it takes time. Don't expect to get all of this overnight. It's a skill to be developed over time. We're all growing in our practice of generosity. And just as, as a brief side note, we are all the recipients of the generosity of many others. In America, there's 62 separate families that give to our church. There are eight churches in America that give to us, another one in South Korea. Now, of those 62 people... None of the churches are like really well off. Of those 62 people, maybe one or two are really financially well off. Most aren't. Some actually aren't well off at all and have been giving every month to Redeemer. And they're happy to give. They're joyful to be a part of, of what God's doing in Manchester through Redeemer. And so through their ministry to us, through their grace to us, we're able to do this, what we see here. I mean, that should make us humble. And whenever I look over those numbers, it makes me want to be more generous myself. They spur me on towards generosity. Now, we talked about motivation, but we didn't really talk about motivation yet. Because where is the motivation for generosity? Lest we think it's just another thing to do, another law to keep, another area where we can overachieve, we see it all starts with an overflow of grace, not towards others, but to us first. We've been giving grace, so much grace, we're overflowing with it. We're blessed to be a blessing. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. This grace from Jesus is utterly undeserved, royally free, an effective, unyielding, inexhaustible goodwill from God made possible through Jesus. It's God's powerful, overflowing mercy. 
We have been the beneficiaries of the greatest gift ever. How can we shut our hearts off to others? Let's not act like miserly millionaires. Jesus is more rich than anyone in the entire universe, but he didn't use his riches to his own advantage. He didn't hoard it for himself. He used them for others. He knew the Father's love so deeply that he didn't have a fear of missing out. He freely gave up everything. He had no fear. He renounced his riches so that the poor could become rich. And this is where spiritual riches translate to generosity, to money and stuff on one side. Christ's riches weren't and aren't material. And the riches he gives us aren't material. It's not money. They're spiritual. But our response, or at least one of our responses to that spiritual richness is to respond in giving materially to people or to churches. Insofar as we understand our spiritual blessings, we give away our material blessings. And how many blessings do we have? How many spiritual blessings do we have? I, I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. So how many blessings do we have? All of them. Oh, how much money do you have? All of it. I have all the money. All the money in the world. I got it. I already have it. Well, what did you do for that? Nothing. How do you keep it? I don't know. He does. Not one blessing withheld. Jesus was with the Father and the Son. There was perfect love between them. Jesus had more than Elon Musk. He had more than Oprah. <clears throat> but he gave it all up so that we can experience perfect love. He came from the Trinity to our earth, walked on our dirt, got laughed at by our mouths, sentenced to death by our justice system, nailed to a cross by our hands, died a death for our sakes. That's what Christ's poverty looked like. And he did this so that we can experience his love, his mercy, his power, his freedom, his wholeness. So our nails, his mercy, our death, his righteousness. When Steve Jobs died, did your life change? When Elon Musk dies, how does that give us life? When Oprah dies, if she ever does, how will that transform us? When Jesus died, he brought all of death with him, including our self-centered, greedy hearts. He brought our hoarding, our money-grubbing, our selfishness. Who doesn't want to be freed from those things? And when he resurrected, he gave us a new heart, one that is merciful, one that's loving, one that surrenders to his word. One that's generous at our own expense. And this great exchange is what we get to celebrate at this table. It's for people who have given up on the consumerist industrial complex. Who have given up on their own fear and have surrendered to Jesus, bank account and all. And if you haven't yet surrendered to Jesus, this table is not for you. Though maybe today you can take that first step to do so. Please join us. You don't have to um, understand it all. You just have to be willing to take the first step. You also don't need to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to follow Jesus. Because Jesus on that cross, that great exchange, his body was broken. And so were our unloving hearts. And his blood was poured out so that we could be part of his generous family. At his own expense, we get to be rich. That's what this bread symbolizes. That's what this wine symbolizes. Whether it's your first step or your hundredth step, we're all the same before this table, before Jesus. People who were poor made rich by Jesus. People who are now called to live in the same countercultural way towards others. So generosity is a sacrifice. It's a skill. And it comes from a heart that is overflowing with God's grace.
Let me pray.